0: You could take your Bible and go to the letter of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, our text will be verse 5 this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use a pew Bible. We have, you might find it in a rack in front of you or on the seat beneath you, you'll find 1 Timothy chapter 1 on page 991 of that copy of the Scripture. It's so good to be here. Your singing is great, by the way. I love hearing the joyful sound that you make. It, it sounds like you really mean it, do you? I, I I really think so. I was talking with a guest uh, here for the first time this morning, right before the service, and and he said to me, the people seem excited here. And I said, well, we are excited. And this is not just an excitement that's because of of. Just the music or just being with friends, but it's, it's an excitement that goes deeper than that. Yesterday, I was in the parking lot here by the church and I heard that exciting sound of aluminum baseball bat cracking against a baseball. You know what I'm talking about? And that sound was followed by a, a massive cheer from the stands over here at Memorial Fields. And there's something really fun about that, right? Summertime, you hear the, the sound of a, of a baseball game. And, and I enjoy cheering at a game like that. But there is something far more meaningful about the people of God gathering around what Jesus has done for them on the cross in saving them and rejoicing in those truths. Isn't that something marvelous? to? Re- is there anything we have to celebrate? Absolutely. That's why we're here. We're here to hear the Word of God. We're here to be changed. The Lord is doing something great here at Trinity Baptist Church, but it's not the result of any kind of human contrivance. It is the Word of God, and that's how change comes about in people's lives. That really is the cornerstone of my conviction of the ministry, of why I think it's profitable at all for me to stand up here and speak to you. It's what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, near the end of the chapter, when he says, we preach Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. That is the cornerstone of Christian ministry. That's what we're doing here this morning. That's why we've turned to 1 Timothy, and we're going to be looking at verse 5. It's because we believe that an extended explanation and exhortation of the Word of God should occupy a good portion of the times that we gather. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then open with a word of prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going Our Father, with joy and energy, we have rehearsed these songs together. We've sung, we've celebrated Your love, we've adored You, we've beheld You, and now we come to this time when we want our hearts to be open to receive Your Word. I pray that You would drive out any doubts, drive out the darkness from our hearts so that we could receive the light of Your Word, the only light that can actually bring about life, the seed of the gospel. I pray that if there's anyone here in this room that has not trusted in Christ, that today would be the day that he or she would do that. Lord, change us. You've promised to use Your Word It's in that hope and confidence that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you heard the statement, if you aim at nothing, you are bound to hit it? It's a statement that's often repeated, I think, with good reason, because so much waste and inefficiency and uh, trouble can get from not even knowing what you're trying to accomplish. I think about this, with the ministry here at Trinity Baptist Church. In all the preaching that goes on, the teaching, we had a teaching hour at 9.30, the, the planning, the, the praying, the programs, all these things that we do, what are we aiming for? What is the intended outcome for all this in our lives? To put it another way, if you could summarize in one word the intended outcome of all This? What would that one word be? Well, thankfully, this is not something that we need to invent on our own. If we did, if we tried, we'd get it wrong. Because we have one of the clearest and most concise statements of the aim of Christian ministry right here in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, when Paul says that the aim of our charge is love. Now, let me give you the context to this so you understand. What's going on here? The elder Apostle Paul is writing to the younger Timothy, and he's telling him, you have a job to do in Ephesus. Stay right where you are because there are some things going on that need help. What was going on there in the church at Ephesus? Well, if you were listening attentively to the reading, you have been aware that there were two kinds of people that Timothy was supposed to tell them, stop talking. On the one hand, there was a kind of person that was teaching a different doctrine, that is, saying things that flatly contradicted the truth of the gospel. This is a false gospel. Paul is telling Timothy, don't let them keep on giving this false gospel. They need to be stopped. They need to be charged not to teach any other doctrine. But there was also another problem that was going on. There were some people, although they were not giving an overtly contradictory message to the gospel, they were obsessed with fringe kinds of things, peripheral types of things, specifically these myths and endless genealogies, these kinds of things that were interesting to talk about, interesting to speculate about, but they weren't accomplishing anything genuinely good in the lives of the hearers. That's why Paul says these are things that promote, what, speculations rather than the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Here is the result of this babbling, this empty talking, is that it's not producing what Christian ministry is intended to produce. You're aiming at nothing. There is a problem there. Paul tells the younger Timothy, you need to correct this problem. See, it's not just false doctrine that we need to be careful of. It is also useless speculation. In a contrast to that, Paul says this the aim of our instruction is love. So here it is. If we had to choose one word that would summarize the intended outcome of a Christian ministry in a person's life, in my life, in your life, what is all this intended to do? If we had to boil it down to just one word, what would that word be? It would be love. Now you may think that I'm putting too much on one isolated passage of Scripture. OK, if, if everything here that we do at church all, your Bible reading, you're listening to sermons, you're uh, your listening to the Bible teaching, is all of this is just intended to love, what intended for love? What about holiness? What about righteousness? What about faith? What about all these other important things? Is it really that love would be that one word, if we were to boil everything down to, would be the outcome of Christian ministry? But consider this. What does the Bible say is that one quality that binds all the other qualities together in perfection? That one virtue that is like the archstone of all other Christian virtues. This is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So all these qualities that he lists, but what is it that binds them together? And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let me ask you this too consider this. If, if, if you might think, "All you're putting too much in love, okay, consider this. What is that one quality that Jesus said was the quality by which all men would know that you are my disciples? Again, the answer is love. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have... What? Love for one another. Someone might ask, but with all this emphasis on love, what about holiness and righteousness? But let me ask you this What is righteousness if not the fulfilling of the law of God? And what is the summary or the fulfillment of the law of God? Check this out. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 13. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there are any other commandments are summed up in this word, you shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's just like what we also read in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Just listen to this. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And do you remember how Jesus answered That inquisitive scribe who asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said the most important commandment of all is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, love is the fulfilling of the law, Therefore, the person that is righteous, the person that is living up to God's expectations, will be a loving person. And it is love that will mark the person who is in complete obedience to God's law. What about this? What is that essential ingredient without which, if you remove, it makes all other Christian efforts meaningless? This is the point. That Paul was making in 1 Corinthians 13 that Pastor Ben read to us earlier. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Whatever love is, it must be so important that without love, even faith is futile. Without love, even sacrifice is meaningless. Without love, even knowledge and the understanding of mysteries and the demonstration of great spiritual gifts amount to nothing. And finally, if it seems like we're putting too much emphasis on this idea of love, what is the very character of God? Purest summary of God's character, and even of the gospel itself, is love. John writes in his first epistle, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because what? God is love. And so it is no surprise. It's no shaky, isolated idea that Paul says, you want to know what the aim of our instruction is? You want to know what the intended outcome of all Christian ministry is? It can be summed in one word, and that is love. Now, you might be thinking, oh, what a relief. I thought you were going to say something hard, like holiness or righteousness, but love... Got that. Easy. Now, it is easy for us to think that way because our culture likes to tell us that love is some shapeless blob that can be morphed by whatever shape the lover wants to shape it into. That the love is really whatever you want it to be. This is what you'll hear in those songs about love. This is what you'll read in psychology articles about love. For example, I came across one that said this, love itself cannot be manipulated or restrained. Love honors the sovereignty of each soul. Love is its own law. We tend to think that love is easy, but when in fact it is really hard. So here's what I want to do in this message. Because we tend to have a distorted view of love, first of all, I want to explain why love is so difficult, and second, I want to explain how we can truly love. Just two divisions here. Why love is so difficult, and then how we can truly love. In an answer to that second division, that's the part of the message in which I'm going to explain the three parts of this verse 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, when Paul writes that love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So why love is so difficult, and second, how we can truly love. Back to that article I referenced that said that love is its own law. It says that love cannot be manipulated or restrained. I noticed something interesting in that article, and that is that whereas in some places the author said that love is just like whatever you want it to be, it's its own law, it doesn't have any sort of rules, yet all throughout the article it gave all sorts of rules about what love should be. Really strict kind of rules. Love should never do this, love should always do this. And then it says, well, love is its own law, and you can't tell what it should and shouldn't do. Here's the thing that I, I think that we tend, to, we tend to have this idea in our culture, is that on the one hand, we want love to be whatever we want it to be. On the other hand, we don't want it to be whatever we want it to be. Because have you ever noticed that these love songs and these celebrations of love, they end up making promises Like, only you. Well, that's pretty restrictive. Only you. Or like this, forever. Well, that's pretty permanent and restrictive. Only you forever. I mean, that really, really narrows love down. That's not some shapeless blob, that involves rules. That involves restrictions. That involves something getting really narrow and specific and with boundaries and a shape and all this. See, see, on the one hand, we want love to be whatever we want it to be. On the other hand, we realize that there is something about love that must take definite structure. I think that these songs and psychologists are partly wrong and partly right. And this points to our true intuition that we have about love. It's that it does have boundaries and it does have standards. But... Those standards are incredibly high and difficult. Consider this, the love that's being referred to in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5 refers to love for God and others. Let's think about what it takes to love other people. How do you test a person's love for someone else? Do you test it when both people are in a good mood, healthy, agree with each other? When both people are just having great experiences and on the same page and in stride together? Is that the the circumstance? Is that the laboratory in which you're going to test, well, what is true love? How do you even know if they love each other? Everything's going fine. Here's how you you test true love. You make one of them really sick and really weak and unbecoming and unpleasant, and if the other person still is committed exclusively, then you can say, now that's true love. You see, you don't test true love when everything's going fine for everybody. You test it under the difficult circumstances. But that is really hard. Because we all know that love, this sense of commitment, if it's going to be truly love, is not mere duty, but it's wedded with delight. It's not that someone just sticks with someone else and says, okay, B, will be with you forever, but I'm sure going to hate it. No, that's not what love is at all. It's commitment, it's dedication, but it's fused with joy and delight in the other person. How is that even possible? That's incredibly difficult. That's an amazingly high standard. That's an amazingly strict boundary as to what love should be. This is very hard. And what about love for God? I mean, we're talking about just love for people, but what about love for God? I mean, this is even more difficult, I would say even impossible, for the Bible tells us that we are naturally, in our nature, we are enemies with God. We don't naturally have a love for God no matter what kind of sentiments people have about a God they think they believe in and love. We are naturally alienated, estranged enemies from God. That's what the Bible tells us. And so no matter how a person feels about loving God, that love for God is expressed in specific ways, not by sentimental feelings but by concrete actions, how does Scripture tell us that love is for God should be manifested? What does, when someone truly loves God, what does that look like? Here's what Jesus said to his followers in John chapter 15, 14 and verse 15. If you love me, he says, you will do what? Keep my commandments. He did not say if you love me, you'll have this warm, tingly feeling in your heart for me. He didn't say, if you love me, then you're going to daydream about the kind of God that you would like to have that smiles on you pleasantly all the time. No, here is the demonstration of love. It is in obedience. This is what John writes also in his first letter. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. Here's what love takes. What's the shape of love? It's not some amorphous uh, blob. Here's the shape of love obedience. And not just obedience that springs from a sense of begrudging duty, but obedience that's fused with joy. That's not easy. When we say that the end of the, the aim of Christian instruction, the whole, the, what this is supposed to accomplish in, on our lives, if, if it is love, and you initially thought, oh, oui, I thought you were going to say something hard. Oh, I did. It does. The aim of our instruction, Paul writes, is, is love, and, and, and this is a love that has incredibly high standards, especially when we speak not only of love for one another, but of, of love for God. Love goes against our nature because our nature is to be self-centered, self-focused. That's why, as Pastor Ben read from 1 Corinthians 13, uh, this, this passage, it says that love does not insist on its own way. That it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's, that's love. That is selfless. Our nature is to be put ourselves at the very epicenter of our universe. Like the way that one author put it, there are many, there are many centers to the universe as there are people in the universe because we want to be at the middle. And yet, love puts not ourselves at the middle, but God. And that goes right against our very nature. And so, the, the question that this leads us to is the second division of this message, and that is this, this how then can we love? Remember, the first part is why love, why it is difficult, but then, how then can we love? And that's why, where we go to this verse here, Paul writes... The aim of our charge is love that will come from where? It will issue if it comes at all from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, this is not to say that that an unbelieving person or a person that has not embraced Christ as his or Savior cannot do loving things. It is to say, rather, that this impossibly high standard, which is love for God and love for others, can be fulfilled only as someone's heart is pure, only as their conscience is good, only as their faith is sincere. So, just three points under this second division. Love, true love for God and others can spring only from a pure heart only from a good conscience, only from sincere faith. Let's look at, at these individually. This love springs first from a pure heart. The word pure here carries the idea of something that has been cleansed. It's the same word that's translated in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Why is it so important? Why is it true that genuine love can spring only from a heart that has been cleansed? Cleansed of what? Cleansed from sin. What is sin? Self-centeredness. The only way in which a heart can be loving is if that self-centeredness is washed away, and the only way that it can be washed away is by the blood of Jesus Christ who died for sinners. That is why we can have a love that is pure and genuine only if we have a heart that is clean, that is cleansed. On the other hand, when self-centered defilement is skulking in our hearts, there is no wonder that we cannot love as we should. But the effect of the gospel, that is that Jesus died for us, is this, that that self-centeredness can be wiped away so that now we can serve with, genuine, uh, with a genuine heart the one who truly loved us and gave his life for us. That is what the gospel is. When we rightly grasp the gospel, the effect, the outcome, is not self-centeredness, but love. A person who understands what Paul understood and expressed in verse 15 of this very chapter, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That message, when it grasps your heart, when you truly understand it, here's the outcome. It's love. It's love for God and love for others. That is the aim of our instruction, Paul writes. But second, it springs from a good conscience Our consciences are like the alarm system of our soul, like the check engine light in our hearts that tells us something is wrong. When our consciences flash and buzz, it could mean that God's laws have been violated. But our consciences can be easily hardened. We can become deaf to the buzzing. We could become blind to the flashing light. Only the gospel can take our consciences and relieve them from the guilt of sin. Because it's only in the gospel that we we see what Jesus did. And then, as as he hung on the cross, he took the guilt for our sin. He bore the punishment that we deserve. He took the wrath of God that should have been rightly expended upon us and, and he absorbed it within himself. And because of that, our consciences can be good. And when our consciences are good, only then can we love freely. True love, gospel-informed love flows from a heart, a conscience that is good. And third, this love springs from a sincere faith. A sincere faith, an unhypocritical faith. this is faith that doesn 't wear a mask it 's the literal meaning of this word here it's it 's a maskless faith it, it is the kind of a faith that doesn 't just put on its costume when it comes to church or when it 's around other christian people, but it 's a faith that is unhypocritical, sincere, it's the same at work, at recreation, as it is right here. It's the same everywhere. It is a sincere faith. Why? Because it's genuinely your, your own heart trusting in Jesus Christ for what He did for you. It is possible for us to, to fake it. In fact, churches can be filled with fake, fake faith. You can fake it for a time. Young people, you can fake it at home. You could fake it at school. You could fake it here at church. But there is something that fake faith cannot produce. And that is genuine love. Because only, only genuine faith can produce true love. You could fake it for a while, but but eventually your actions will show for what your heart is. It's easy to, to act like you love someone only in little segments of time, only in, in little snippets, but, but, but to, to truly love, to walk in obedience to God, not just because you have to, not, because those, not just because those are the rules, not just because that's the external pressure or the thing that's expected to do, to truly show obedience to God requires a heart that's been completely transformed and changed on a radical level. This is genuine faith. And true love, which is the outcome of all Christian ministry, true love can only spring not only from a pure heart and a good conscience, but also from an unfeigned faith. Sincere faith, unhypocritical. Your actions will show eventually what you believe. And here, I think, is an appropriate time for a a warning, because we find warnings in Scripture about the importance of a good conscience and the connection between a good conscience and faith i want you to look a little later on in this chapter in verse 18 when paul says this we're in 1st timothy chapter 1 go down to verse 18 he says this charge i entrust to you timothy my child in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you wage the good warfare how is he going to wage the good warfare here it is holding faith and what A good conscience. Now, by rejecting this, what does the this refer to? It is the good conscience. By rejecting a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of what? Their faith. There is more than one way to shipwreck your faith. It is not merely by failing to believe the truth of the gospel, but by continually hardening one's conscience. Why? Because eventually, we're going to adjust what we believe according to how we behave. Our belief and behavior go hand in hand. You cannot consistently live in a sinful lifestyle and expect to hold the faith of Christianity because your conscience has been seared. Eventually, you'll give up what you believe to align with what you behave. how you behave. Fight the good fight. Keep faith in a good conscience. Let your belief and let your behavior be joined so that what you do and what you believe are one, fused together. Because only by having a sincere faith can you love sincerely. And that's why John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So there it is why love is so hard. But here's how it's possible. True love is only possible when your heart has been changed, when your conscience is good and your faith is sincere. How does this come then? It comes by believing what Paul expressed so beautifully, that verse that I already read to you. It's verse 15. I want you to look at it. This This is a faithful saying. It's trustworthy. And here it is. Here is this pure distillation of the gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world. What was his mission? It was to save sinners. That's why Jesus came and died and rose again to bring people like you and me to a right relationship with God. But it doesn't just stop there. It's not enough to merely believe that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but there is this personalization of it. And I don't know about anybody else, but Paul says, I am the worst of them. Because if there was only one sinner and that sinner was me, Jesus would have died. And that would have been right. That would have been an expression of His love for me. That's what the gospel does. It focuses our hearts and minds on Jesus, the Savior, His love in showing mercy toward me, the sinner, and me embracing Him for who He is. You can do that. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is the only way in which a person can actually love purely.